we're starting a new sermon series this morning. And for the next nine weeks, in attempts to really bring our attention to where it needs to be during the Advent season, we're going to look at why, why Jesus needed to come. Why did, why did Jesus need to leave heaven, become a man, and come to earth? Why was that necessary? And we're going to look at how the Old Testament, again and again and again, foreshadows the, the coming of Christ, points forward to the coming of the Messiah, and how now that He has come, what that means for us. So over the next nine weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to give you a biblical theology of why Jesus, Jesus needed to come. And I don't know about you, but I know that that's really necessary for me this time of year. There are so many other distractions. There's family. If you've ever experienced a loss during this time of year, it can be a difficult time to see everybody else so bubbly and cheerful. Um, We get distracted by celebrations. We get distracted by having to to orchestrate parties. And, And by the time the season has come and gone, it's like we've forgotten to really celebrate Jesus. And thank God for the gift of His Son. And so hopefully these sermons, this sermon series, will serve to slow us all down a little bit and help us to to refocus our attention on why um, Jesus needed to come. And so we're going to plot the basic storyline, big picture, of Scripture. So if you're interested, please come for the next nine weeks if you weren't planning on coming already. And as everybody knows... If you're going to be looking at a story, the place to start is in the beginning, isn't it? And so that's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bibles or one of our Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. First book in your Bible, just in case you're not familiar with your Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation Plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening 
and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we tremble before the power of your word. Lord, we tremble that at the power of your word, you created all things and you sustain all things. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that as we look at your word, we would behold your glory and we would stand in awe of you and we would be amazed and how your character, your wisdom, your goodness, your might, and your power are on display in all that you have made. Father, we confess together that all creation is singing. God created us. God created us. Give him praise. Give him glory. And so we pray that as we gather together this morning that we would worship you. 
from the depths of our hearts, and we would sing your praises together. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, one of the questions that I'm often asked since I oversee most of the counseling here at the church, when people, when I'm sitting with people in the midst of their pain and in the midst of their suffering, they'll often look at me with tears in their eyes and, and after explaining to me their situation, they'll say, why are things the way they are? Why is the world this way? Why is my life this way? Why is my marriage this way? Why is my health this way? Why is my family this way? And these are questions that people ask often in the midst of incredible personal suffering and debilitating doubt where everything that you once thought you were certain of disappears and your whole world is just turned upside down. And I wonder, have you ever been there before? I still remember very vividly the first time I found myself asking that question. I was only 10 years old. And to be completely honest with you, up to that point in my life, my life had been a walk in the park. My life was so easy. It was easy to enjoy my life. I had a great family. I had great friends. I had great health. I loved my life. And I showed it. My family uh, called me Joyful Jason. I just loved life. But then everything changed when for no apparent reason I began to have these incredibly intense stomach pains when I was in the fifth grade. We went to the doctor. The doctors ran every test they could possibly think of, and nothing showed up. Eventually, they found a, a minor issue with my appendix, and so they said, well, we're going to take that out, and hopefully that will solve the problem, but it didn't. And months went by, months and months, and still nothing. The pain was still there. And as time continued to drag on, I slipped into a depression at 10 years old. Life didn't make sense to me anymore. I didn't understand how things could go from being so good to so bad so quickly. And so I found myself asking God, why? Why is the world the way that it is? Why is my life the way that it is? Why is life this incessant mixture of joy and sadness, of pleasure and pain, of goodness and evil, of success and of failure? I don't understand. Again, I wonder, have you ever been there before? Maybe that's where you're at this morning. And the reason I ask that question is because the Israelites, when the book of Genesis was written to them, were asking themselves the very same question. Now, I'll be honest with you, we, we have a hard time, we, scholars, I'm not a scholar, at the level that these guys are, scholars have a hard time dating the book of Genesis. There are a lot of reasons for why it's difficult to date it, but it's, it's highly probable that the book was written to the Israelites when they were in Moab, attempting to enter the promised land for the second time. And you remember what happened the first time they tried to go into the promised land, don't you? They're, they're brought up to the promised land, and God tells them, go and take it. They send some spies out. They come back. The report is that the people there are huge. 
And so the Israelites are afraid and they say, we're not going to take, we can't take that land. They're doubting God's promise. They're not believing that God will deliver the Canaanites into their hands. And so what does God do? He says, Moses, you're not taking them in there. You guys are going to go wander in the wilderness until this whole generation is wiped out. And then the next generation will come in. And this is that generation. They're, they're at the gates of the promised land, and they're terrified because they remember what happened to the previous generation. And so they're scared. They're afraid. And they were asking themselves the question, why is the world the way it is? How did we get here? How did we get to this point in time? And that's why the author of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this book. Genesis was intentionally written by the will of God to answer that question. And the way it answers that question is it takes us all the way back to the beginning, the very beginning of the story. And that's where we're going to spend our time together this morning. And while this may sound extremely ambitious uh, to you, we're going to cover the first three chapters of Genesis. So I hope you guys are ready for that. Um, and as we look at these passages, I want us to see three reasons for why the world is the way it is. Three reasons for why the world is the way it is. God's benediction in creation, God's malediction in rebellion, and God's continuing benediction despite malediction. I know I use some big words there, don't worry, I'm going to define them. And if that last point doesn't make sense to you, it will by the end of the sermon, I promise you. So first, let's look at God's benediction in creation. God's benediction in creation. And really, it should come as no surprise to us that on the very first page of Scripture, what we find is the creation story. And the reason that that shouldn't surprise us is because every civilization in the history of the world, when it's trying to explain why the world is the way it is, it gives a creation account. It doesn't matter what civilization you look at, they have a creation myth or a creation story that usually started out with multiple gods warring. And then some of the carcasses of the dead gods turn into the earth and the heavens. And then out of all the chaos of this fighting comes all creation. And man is usually a creation of, of one of the gods. Or in, in our myth, there's what? There's a big bang, isn't there? Or in some myths, there's a pre-existing matter. So what, what separates Christianity is not that we have a creation story. It's that our creation story is actually a true account of what happened. And what we find in the beginning is that God is there. Nothing else, no one else, no, no pantheon of gods, no pre-existing matter. It's just God. In the beginning, God. Now, I encourage you, you want to have your mind just explode, try to wrap your mind around that. Nothing and no one else exists, nothing, just God. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, existing in perfect blessed, unbroken fellowship with one another. I cannot wrap my mind around that. My mind just explodes and then I end up in worship. I hope that's where you end up this morning as well. And in the midst of that, that communion, in the midst of that communion within the Godhead, God decides to create the heavens and the earth. And keep this in mind, God didn't create because he had some need within him. 
God didn't say, hey, I need to make creation so that I can be glorified, or I need to make man so that I can have companionship. God had everything that he needed within himself. As a matter of fact, to say that God needs anything is blasphemy. God needs nothing. There is no lack in God. It's a part of his character that he is dependent upon nothing and no one. That's who God is. And so he doesn't create because of some lack in him. It's purely out of his abundant goodness that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit decide to create. And so God creates the heaven and the earth. And the way he does that is simply astounding. He simply speaks forth the words, and out of nothing, remember, nothing else exists, out of nothing, he creates the entire universe. Now, in verse 2 of chapter 1, we're told that God created the earth without form. In other words, nothing could live there yet. There was no light, there was no land, it was chaos, it was inhospitable. And in the midst of that chaos, we see that the Spirit is hovering over the waters and He's about to bring order to this disorder. And then God speaks and He says, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. And and the author of Genesis is highlighting for us here the power and the centrality of God's Word. It's easy for us to miss it um, but this, this chapter is written almost very poetically. It's almost like a song. And if you notice, ten times the author of Hebrews says, God said, God said, God said. It's this continual refrain. And if you know anything about Hebrew literature, the number ten symbolizes completeness or fullness. And so what the author is telling us by mentioning ten times that God said is that God's word is completely powerful, entirely sovereign, fully authoritative, and in control of all things. That's the power of God's word as it's shown to us in the creation account. So God created the whole universe, the heavens and the earth, and light in one day by simply speaking it forth. And that closes out the first day of creation. But it wasn't done yet. The second day, God created the heavens. The third day, He created the dry land and the seas and all vegetation. The fourth day, He created the sun, the moon, and the stars. The fifth day, He created all the creatures that fill the skies and the seas. And on the sixth day, He created all the creatures that would live upon the land including man. And you know what's so amazing about all of this? As God is creating this perfectly hospitable paradise and filling it to the brim, He's pronouncing His blessing over creation. You see, God's benediction was on creation. And I realize that benediction isn't a word that we use very often. Sometimes you hear us um, say that at the end of the service, we're going to say a benediction. Um, But let me define it for you. Benediction, um, let's break the word down. Bene means good, or it means blessing. And diction means speech or word. So literally, benediction means good word or um, words of blessing. And what we clearly see again and again throughout the first chapter of Genesis is God speaking His blessings, His benediction 
over creation. Each time after he creates something, what does he say? It's good. And you see, that's God's benediction. God created all things and then pronounced his blessing on all things. And this blessedness, this life under God's benediction, while it extended to all of creation, it was upon man in a very special and unique way. And when we look at Adam and Eve and their life in the garden, we see what that was supposed to look like, what that unique blessing upon Adam and Eve was supposed to look like. First of all, they experienced blessed fellowship with God. In verse 21, excuse me, verse 26 of chapter 1, we see that God created Adam and Eve in His image. Now let's be honest, we could spend the next nine weeks just talking about the theology of what it means to be made in the image of God. We're not going to do that, but what we know at the very, excuse me, very least is that being made in the image of God means that we have the ability and the capacity to have a relationship with God. And in the garden, Adam and Eve had a perfectly blessed relationship with God. God walked with them. God talked with them. He was friends with them. And he loved them. Now, I want to be careful here because what you can easily um, assume then is, well, if God loves spending time so much with man, clearly he needed man. And you'll, you'll hear that in some... Uh, from some Christian leaders out there. They'll tell you, yeah, God needed companionship with you and that's why he created you and that's why he's pursuing you. No, God does not need you. God needs nothing. But God loved man. He loved that he was made in his image and so he drew near to him and loved him. And you see, there's something very different about man that sets him apart from the rest of creation. It's the fact that he's made in the image of God. And that uniqueness is even highlighted in the way in which God created man. In verse 7 of chapter 2, we see that when God made the man, he put his hands into the dirt. He got dirty. He didn't just speak man into existence. God formed him from the dust. He molded man. He shaped man. And then it says that God breathed life into man's nostrils, the breath of life. You see, God isn't distant here like He is when He's creating everything else. He's not in the heavens just speaking man into existence. No, instead, God draws near. He's imminent. He's close as He's creating man and breathing life into him. And God does the same thing when He creates the woman. He draws near to the man and performs the first surgery as it is, removing uh, the man's rib and then beautifully fashioning this woman from that rib. You see, how God created man is so much more intimate than how he created everything else because God created us to have a close, intimate relationship with him. And in the beginning, that's exactly what Adam and Eve had. They were blessed by God with that relationship. And they not only experienced this blessedness with God, they also experienced it with each other. You see, Adam and Eve had a perfectly blessed marriage. God created them to perfectly complement each other, and in a very real sense, He created them to complete one another. And when God presents Eve to Adam after 
after creating her, Adam is so excited about this that he bursts into song. And every time I read this verse, I can't help but think of Etta James at last. My love has come along. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go look it up. It's a great song. Um, But he says in verse 23 of chapter 2, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And the scene here is so beautiful. God brings them together and they hold fast to each other and they become one flesh. You see, sex in the garden was perfectly blessed, perfectly blissful, and God made it that way, and God rejoiced that it was that way. And Adam and Eve reveled in it. Here we have them naked before each other, and guess what? They're not ashamed. They have nothing to hide. Body and soul, they are open and vulnerable to one another. You see, this is the blessedness that God created for mankind to experience in marriage. Adam was the perfect husband. Eve was the perfect wife. And God brought them together and blessed their marriage. But it gets even better. I know you're probably thinking, how could it get any better than that? It gets better. This blessedness also extended to their home. It extended to the garden. It extended to Eden. You see, God strategically made the best place on earth, and that's exactly where he chose for Adam to live. That's where God put him. And Genesis 2.15 tells us that God put him there to tend the garden. God put him there to work. And once God puts him there, he also tells him to exercise dominion over all creation and to reproduce and fill the earth. And guess what? In the garden, Adam and Eve did that perfectly. You see, in the garden, work and carrying out the cultural mandate, exercising dominion over all things and reproducing, was pure bliss. The ground was fertile. The plants readily produced fruit and vegetables. The animals obeyed Adam and Eve's every word. I love that scene where uh, the animals just prance in front of Adam and he's naming all of them. And whatever he named them, that was their name. And when Adam and Eve came up with a plan for work, they were always able to see it succeed. Their plans were never frustrated. They never failed. And they never wanted for anything. This was paradise. This was the blessed life that God had given them. So why is the world the way that it is? Why is it that you can enjoy such an incredible variety of tastes in food and drink? Why is it that you can enjoy incredible sights such as sunsets and mountains and trees and the ocean and all sorts of different Uh, various forms of artistic expression? Why is it that you can enjoy friendship and marriage and relationships in general? Why is it that you can enjoy your work? Why is this universe orderly and good and beautiful and wisely designed? Because God created all things by the power of His Word out of nothing. And He created it good and His benediction, His blessing is upon it. So that's why the world is filled with so many good things for us to enjoy. Because God's benediction is on His creation. But unfortunately, we know that's not the whole story, don't we? 
The world is also the way it is because of God's malediction in rebellion. God's malediction in rebellion. In chapter 2, verse 16, we get a foreshadowing that things might not always remain under the blessing of God. God gives Adam a command and says, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, the frightening reality is that in the midst of this garden teeming with life and vitality and joy, we're told that there's the possibility of death entering onto the scene and that it's up to the man to make sure that this doesn't happen. And as much as we hope that things will stay the way they are, oh, how we want for things to stay the way that they are, we know that they won't. Unfortunately, when we get to chapter 3, we see that tragedy strikes. And the first thing that we notice is that a new player is introduced to the storyline. He's a serpent. He's one of God's creations. But he's more crafty than any of the other creatures. And obviously the serpent here is Satan. And the, sat- and the serpent comes up with a brilliant plan. He bypasses the man and goes straight to the woman to see if he can confuse her about what God has said. And so what he does is he tempts Eve to doubt God's word. More specifically, he tempts her to doubt God's goodness. So he comes to her and he whispers in her ear, Can't you see, Eve? God's withholding something good from you. He knows that if you eat of the fruit of the tree, that you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. If you eat the tree, you'll have the knowledge that God himself has, and you won't have to listen to him anymore. You'll be able to call the shots. You'll be able to take God's place. Don't you see what God's doing to you, Eve? And sadly, Eve believes the serpent. And so she sees the fruit, and it delights her, and she takes it, and she eats it. And then she gives it to Adam, and he eats it as well. And in so doing, they rebel against God. They sin against their king. They transgress the commandment of their creator. And so in one of the most tragic scenes in all of Scripture, for the first time in the history of the world, God draws near to man, not to bless him, but to curse him. And for his sins, man would now receive maledictions or cursing words from God rather than benedictions. And this malediction, this curse, would extend to all of his life because the curse would extend to all of creation. First, and most tragically, man's fellowship with God would be cursed. Man would no longer walk with God in the cool of the garden like he used to. Instead, man would now hide from God, as we see Adam and Eve doing in verse 8 of chapter 3. And man would no longer talk with God as a man talks with his dearest friend face to face. Instead, man would now speak reservedly and shamefully before God, as we see Adam doing in verse 10 of chapter 3. Man would no longer live under the benediction of God like he used to. Instead, man would now be a recipient of God's active curse 
upon his life and his surroundings. As we see in verses 14 through 19 of chapter 3, man would no longer perfectly worship God. Instead, as Romans 1 tells us, he would now worship the creature rather than the creator. And man would no longer live before God in innocence and safety as he was created to. Instead, man would now live in guilt and fear before God. Secondly, man would experience the curse of God in his relationship with his wife. They would no longer relate with one another in openness and honor. Instead, they would hide from each other in shame. After they eat from the tree, isn't that the first thing that we see them do? They realize they're naked in front of each other, and so they try to cover their nakedness with pathetic clothing made out of fig leaves. They would also no longer seek the other person's best. Instead, they would now blame each other for their sin. Again, right after the fall, what do we see them do? God draws near to them, saying, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to? And what does Adam say in verse 12? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. God bl- uh, Adam blames it on Eve. And then God asks Eve, and what does she say in verse 13? The serpent deceived me and I ate. She's blaming it on the serpent. You see, blame shifting, pointing, would now become the normal experience in human relationships. The curse would also affect how they seek to carry out their marital roles toward each other. In verse 16 of chapter 3 we read, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In other words, part of the curse for Eve is that she's now going to want to control her husband. God set things up in such a way that Adam would sacrificially, lovingly lead Eve, and she would willingly follow. But now what we see is that Eve is going to want to not follow. She's going to want to take the reins. She's going to want to take charge. She's going to want to take over. And God is telling Adam that part of the curse for him is that he's going to rule harshly over Eve now. He'll either be lazy in his role, which will make it extremely difficult for Eve, or he's going to rule over her with an iron fist, micromanaging her and her every decision and movement, which will also be very hard on her. You see, because of the curse, Adam and Eve, husband and wife, will no longer seek to serve one another in love, but instead seek to use the other person for their own personal gain. Another part of God's curse is that raising children will now be more painful than it otherwise would have been. And I know every woman here this morning is probably asking the question, what was the pain like before the curse? We don't know. But what we do know is that the pain was clearly multiplied and increased. And I don't think, by the way, that that's just referring to um, the actual delivery of the child, child bearing. I think it's also talking about child rearing. It's going to be a painful process now raising up offspring. And all of us have been children to parents. And you know you can cause them pain, can't you? And if you're a parent here this morning... You know better than anybody else. No one can cause you pain like your child. And that's a result of the curse. It's a result of the fall. And sadly, God's curse also extended to their home, to their environment, to the garden, to Eden. In verses 17 through 19, 
God tells Adam that the ground is now cursed because of his sin. No longer will plants easily and readily produce abundant food. Now he's going to have to toil for it. He'll have to sweat for it. He'll have to deal with thorns and thistles. There will now be barriers and things thwarting Adam's will when he's trying to accomplish a task. And I don't care if you're a stay-at-home mom. I don't care if you're out in the workforce. I don't care if you're retired and doing whatever you want to be doing. Whenever you come up with a plan, you know that there are going to be things getting in the way. There's going to be barriers. That's a result of the curse. Even more tragically, we read in verses 23 through 24 of chapter 3 that God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden. He drives them out and he places a cherubim with a flaming sword so that they can never return to eat of the tree of life. It's tragic. They've been cut off from God's blessedness and now they've been cut off from his presence and they're, now they're going to have to eke out a living east of Eden, east of the garden, outside of God's blessing. And lastly, and most frighteningly, God tells Adam and Eve that part of the curse is that they will die. They will die physically, where they experience the unnatural separation of their body from their souls, and their body returns to the dust from which it came, and they will also die spiritually. Because they turned away from God and turned in on themselves, they would now be spiritually dead to God. In short, Paradise has been lost. In Adam, we took the blessed life that God gave us under his rule and we exchanged it for a cursed life under our own rule and the rule of the flesh and the world and the devil. So why is the world the way that it is? Why is it filled with hatred and pain and sickness, and sorrow, and death, and broken relationships, and sadness, and murder, and wars, because we rebelled against God, and He justly cursed us and all creation for that rebellion. But thankfully, we know that's not the whole story. The world as we know it is also the way that it is because of God's continuing benediction despite malediction. And honestly, this is one of the most mind-boggling truths to me personally. I still don't think I have my mind around it completely. That even in the midst of God's cursing us for our rebellion, He graciously doesn't remove all of our blessing, all of His blessing. You see, God's curse doesn't cancel out His blessing. After the fall, God doesn't give us the full extent of what we deserve. Because what did Adam and Eve deserve right after the fall? It would have been perfectly just for God to have the ground split beneath their feet and for them to be swallowed up into the depths of hell where for all eternity they would be recipients of God's active wrath upon them. And by the way, that's what each and every one of us deserves here this morning for the ground to split beneath my feet and for me to go straight to hell. That's what we deserve in Adam for the fall. But that's not what God gives us. 
in His common grace, He still blesses us. Now, don't get confused. I'm, I'm not talking about God's saving grace in redeeming us in Jesus. I'm just talking about God's common grace to all mankind, His grace to believers and unbelievers alike. Simply as His creation, He continues to bless us. And we can see this so clearly in Genesis chapter 3. We can see God's grace even in judgment. For example, God still provides Adam and Eve with a home that they can live in. Is it the garden? Is it Eden? No. But it's this world. And even though it's cursed, it's still better than they deserve. And they can still experience God's blessing in it. I don't know about you, but I know unbelievers who experience more of God's common grace in creation than I do. You guys know people like that? I'm sure you do. Why is that? It's God's common grace. God also still provides Adam and Eve with a marriage. Is it the way that God created it to be, perfectly blessed? No. Even though it's cursed now with conflict, it's still better than they deserve. And they can still experience God's blessings in it. Again, I know unbelievers who have better marriages than believers. How do we explain that? It's God's common grace. God also still provides Adam and Eve with work. Now, is it effortless? No, it's cursed now with toil. It's not easy anymore. But it's still better than they deserve. And they can still experience God's blessings in it. Again, I know plenty of unbelievers who have better jobs than believers do. I know believers right now who can't find jobs and unbelievers who can. Why is that? It's God's common grace. God also still provides Adam and Eve with offspring. And even though raising them will be cursed by pain, it's still better than they deserve. And they can still experience God's blessings in it. And again, I know unbelievers whose kids turn out great. And then I know believers whose kids turn out horribly. I know believers who want to have kids but are unable to have kids. And I know unbelievers who are able to have kids. Why is that? It's God's common grace. And most amazingly of all, God still pursues Adam and Eve. Yes, He drives them out of the garden, but it's only with the goal in mind of one day making all things new. That's God's plan. But I want to be abundantly clear about this, so please hear me out. God's common grace is not enough. We were created for so much more than to just settle for the common grace blessings that God still gives us in this cursed world. We were created to know and love God. And common grace is not enough to restore our broken relationship with Him. So even though God's common grace is an incredible blessing, don't get me wrong, that we should be thankful for, we desperately, desperately need God's saving grace. It's our only hope. You see, what we truly need is a second Adam 
to come and do what the first Adam never could. What we truly need is someone to come and earn for us the saving benediction of God that we can never earn for ourselves. What we truly need is someone to come and pay the penalty for our sins, a penalty that we don't have the resources to pay. What we truly need is someone to come and take the malediction of God upon Himself so that we don't have to bear it anymore. What we truly need is someone to become the curse in our place. What we truly need is someone to enter into the mess that is our world, our lives, and to be God with us in the midst of it. What we truly need is someone who can come and change our dead, rebellious hearts and give us new hearts that willingly submit to our King and our Creator. What we truly need is someone who can clothe our nakedness and remove our shame. What we truly need is someone who can reconcile us to God and to our spouses and to our kids and to our friends and to our enemies. Brothers and sisters, guests this morning, this is why the world is the way that it is. And this is why we so desperately need a Savior. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we stand amazed at the blessings and the goodness and the power and the wisdom and the might that is shown in you creating all things. And Lord, we acknowledge that you have proclaimed your blessing on all creation. But Lord, because of our rebellion against you in Adam, because he rebelled against you as our representative, and because we are in him as all mankind is, Lord, now your malediction has been proclaimed upon us and upon your creation. And Father, it amazes us that in your common grace, you still give us so many blessings. You still allow us to enjoy so many things. And Lord, the temptation for us is to let our joy end and terminate in those common grace blessings rather than acknowledge that we desperately need you to save us and to redeem us. But Lord, the fall is abundantly clear that we need a substitute, we need a savior, we need a redeemer who will come and make all things new and restore us to Yourself and make things better than they were even before the fall in the blessed state of paradise. And Father, we thank You that You have supplied that Redeemer to us in the person and work of, your, of the person of Jesus Christ. He has come and He has won the saving benediction of You that we so desperately need. And He has become the curse, the malediction that we deserve in our place on the cross. And Father, because we are in Him, that saving benediction that He has earned is now given to us by grace through faith. And so Lord, we rejoice in that together. And we pray that as we spend our days in this creation, that we would just stand in awe of who You are. 
and stand in awe of your glory and that we would join in all creation in singing your praises. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.